All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Another episode of the Thereafter Podcast, episode three of this season, season three. And actually, this is... they get like a golden episode? It's like the golden episode of season season three, three, episode three. Well, I'm just glad that we stopped having episode one because we did that twice and it was kind (laughs) of tiring. Even my sister was listening. She goes, I listened to your second first episode. And I was like, yeah. This is officially episode three. We've moved, we've moved past starting. (laughs) We like to give it two starts. Um, How are you? Hey, I, I preached today. That's right. How was it that? It was great. I, you know what? Yeah. I was in this Quaker church, and it was so beautiful. I don't know if you're familiar, but... Did you have your shoulder showing like that? I did. That... I even, like, oh my, my tattoo. Like... Oh, my God. <laughs> they were great. They were such a beautiful community, and it was super inclusive, and it felt very accepting and open, and, and um, it was, yeah, it was beautiful. Well, it's got, I mean... When I met Matt, I don't think he'll mind me telling me the story. The pastor, he was like, yeah, Yeah. I mean, I heard you on there after on the season finale. And I thought, I'd love to have you come just talk about anything. And I was like, are you talking about the episode about masturbation? And uh, he was (laughs) like, yeah. I'm like, well, I won't talk about that. But and I think I even said in our last episode that I wasn't talking about masturbation. Yeah. Um, But anyway, it was great. And um, yeah, I I think it, it could be something I do occasionally. That's awesome. I, I'm bummed that I couldn't tune in. I was asleep. Well, I just tweeted I out a thread this morning. about it, and um, there's a link to the audio if you want to listen. Oh, cool. Yeah, I definitely will. I will be excited to do that. That's awesome. Yay, Megan. Yeah. How about Twitfits? Let's talk about Twitter. There's been things going on on the, on the Twitter. Uh, I need to start keeping like a running tally. Lecrae. Of... Yeah, we should talk about Lecrae. <laughs> it seemed to be the thing that was happening. Yeah. And, uh, Yet another voice yeah. that says, I'd like to weigh in on how problematic, quote unquote, deconstruction is. And here's the thing. Can I can I rant for a second? Are we here? <laughs> Go for it. I'm here. My biggest pet peeve. Well, I have a lot of pet peeves. One of my pet peeves is that he what he said was, I deconstructed, and so I can be this authority on deconstruction. Like, I can say from my deconstruction experience, I deconstructed, and so now I can say this. And and it's the same thing that Alyssa Childers did. And it's like putting people into a box to say, like, or, or like this shield of protection. Like, you can't really, like, come after me because I'm actually somebody that deconstructed too, which if you are going through deconstruction, I think even just – 
the word deconstructed as if your journey ended and you landed someplace and now you have certainty is a huge red flag. But I also have this urge to scream like, you didn't really deconstruct. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Well, and there's this, there's this, there's this narrative. It's the exact same language that was used by that gospel coalition pastor. I forget what his name is, but he made the video that circulated it like a year, maybe year and a half ago saying there's like a right way. And that's the way that Jesus did. Jesus was the first person to deconstruct. And then, you know, and, and there's been a lot of takes on that whole thing in terms of, you know, yeah, well, I mean, Jesus, like, after Jesus, like, they're, like Christianity, like, is a whole new religion. So, like, <laughs> is that what you're asking us to do? Should we start a new religion? <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sure. I, j- saying the, 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 the danger language was what was especially, like, I think concerning for me. It's like, this is a dangerous, there's one that's good and then one that's dangerous. And it just feels like fear mongering a little bit. Well, and also he says, you know, where are you going to find morality if you walk away from from God? And it really is so interesting because, I mean, he in his mind and in his thread, he said the danger of deconstruction is that you might lose your faith altogether. And that's, you know, this dangerous, dangerous thing. And I think it's so wild that people think that without God or without without the Christian God, without the Bible, that we would have no morality. And I also think it's interesting because of the complicated morality that's even in the Bible. And and so I guess all of that, but then I will also say that the thing that makes me, makes my head spin is when I see somebody like Lecrae with 1.6 million followers that has an influence and all the quote tweets and comments that are like, you are spot on. This is so good. Read this thread. And I'm like, no, this is really not good. Yeah, a bit. Lecrae has for a long time been, I mean, John Piper, like super reformed. I mean, he was he he that was he John Piper adjacent? I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize because I'm not like 100 percent sure, but he was definitely doing stuff with the like highly reformed, you know, super evangelical groups, you know, the, the Matt Chandlers and the John Pipers of the world. Lecrae was doing stuff in those circles, um, theologically speaking at, you know, uh, uh, very, very evangelical places. And he apparently says that he's not anymore, that he has moved away from that type of evangelicalism, but has always been in my, in my experience of, of seeing things from him, very fundamentalist in his theology and it and it feels like that stays that has stayed true like even in this thread he feels it feels pretty fundamentalist yeah it's that's interesting the last i lecrae was on my radar the last time was in that interview are you do you know about the interview with louis giglio that he did yes where louis giglio tried to frame slavery as a white blessing and it was very yes. like, oh man, Louis, he, that is not that is not the thing. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I do. I mean, and and I guess I'll I'll say that I like I like don't know enough about Lecrae, and I'm not trying to at all throw any shade his way about his personal experience. I think he's probably had a very 
unique experience and and I, you know, am not trying to discredit whatever experience of faith change or evolution he's been through, but the prescriptive way in which that thread and in, in which he seems to be talking about faith is I think, you know, is is I don't know. It's just it's just not it. Well, can we just ask, can can he stay in his lane? Like I, I mean, it's like be the be the Christian musician, the Christian rapper that you are, and then don't maybe weigh in on things that are so, you know, on deconstruction. If if it's so much bigger than you maybe you realize it is. I don't know. So and I don't know what definition of deconstruction he's using to say that he deconstructed. So like you said, maybe he's just a little less fundamentalist, but I like, I mean, he says that he's separating himself from evangelicalism, that he left. He's no longer evangelical. I think he said in one tweet, he's like, he even considered himself an atheist at one point. I, you know, like there were some parts in his responses because he responded a lot to people replying and quote tweets and things in that thread. Um, and, and there were some responses in there that had me curious, like, okay, like, it feels like maybe there's some curiosity here that's actually interesting or could lead to an interesting conversation. Like I would be open to having some type of like curious conversation with him. Cause I would be curious about his experience. Um, but the original thread was so prescriptive and so specific and, and felt very limited in openness to other ideas. It was like, you need to have this, still really clinging towards some type of foundational fundamental truth claim that was necessary in order for your beliefs to be valid. And I think that that's the thing that like, like you have to get past. Like if there is at the end of the day, some type of fundamental absolute truth that you feel is necessary at the base to be able to be valid, then I feel like you, you're not going to like actually be able to consider other perspectives or be open or be curious. Yeah. And I think there was chatter on, on Twitter too, about, you know, if, if you deconstruct or start deconstructing with an end goal in mind, then you're just, you're not reconstructing, you're renovating. And I thought that was really interesting too, because really at the end of the day, if you're like, okay, I'm going to like just limit the questions that I can ask or the places that I can wander, then what are you even doing? You know? And and, and I guess I don't want to say like, you know, you have to walk away from God. Cause like, clearly I still hold the label of progressive Christian, but I also constantly question what I do believe about divinity and God and all of it. And I think if I didn't do that, if I, if I said, this is a territory that I won't let myself question, or this is a territory that I won't let myself wander into, then I'm not, I'm not really being, being comprehensive about the things that I'm able to unpack and and wonder about and have curiosity about. Yeah. And I think that there's a complexity to truth, right? Like I was going to tweet this out. I couldn't get the language right. So I never did, but like, like, like there's no absolute truth in my opinion, just like there's no absolute like cake, right? Because like a cake is, 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 is not a base thing, right? A ba- a, a cake is something that's made up of 
several different ingredients that can be cooked in different ways, that can be baked in different ways. A cake is a, a product that is made up of lots of different things. And truth to me is is somewhat that as well, right? Like truth isn't a singular ingredient. Truth is a combination of perspectives, of viewpoints, of facts, of, of experiences, of stories, right? And so when we try to draw this absolute truth as a, as a finite, singular thing, that's not how truth works, right? Like, truth is a conversation. Truth is a combination of several ingredients of reason and perspective and debate and inspiration. And so... I, I just get so frustrated at the absolute truth claim claim. Like where where is your absolute truth? It's like that that's not a thing. That's that like like literally any type of truth that you want to talk about is going to involve other things. And the orientation that you face, right? Like what your orientation is towards I'm not talking about like sexual orientation, but like how are you orienting yourself in perspective towards this truth or this reality or this idea? And so it's this oversimplification of like, there has to be one fundamental true thing and that's not how truth works. That's not how understanding works. And so as long as you're, you're, you're fighting for this finite, fundamental, absolute, objective truth claim, you are, you are not able to participate in the conversation. I don't think. It, it, it cuts you off and it limits you. You can believe in God, sure, but God is not an absolute truth claim. God is your perspective. God is your experience. God is what you see is divinely inspiring, what you see is scripture. There's so many factors that come into making a singular claim, like I believe or don't believe in God. Even the claim that I would make saying I don't believe in God is not a like a singular claim. Like that is where I have arrived based on tons of different things that we could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love so that. That's that was that was my when he kept in some of these replies, Lecrae kept saying, like, well, where do you get the absolute objective truth? In a combination of lots of different things. I, I always think <laughs> just, it's funny that people think that without the Bible, we're gonna be serial killers. Like it's just there's going to be no morality and there's nothing that's going to stop us from knowing right and wrong. And we're just going to become serial killers. But also to your point, it reminds me of a Twitter a conversation, a little bit of back and forth that I had this week with somebody that was asking, um, like, if I don't get my sexual ethics from the Bible, where do I get them from? And so we had that conversation. And then she was like, well, then like, what's the role of the Bible? Like what, like, do we throw it out altogether? And like, just asking a lot of questions. And I, and I actually started to feel like she was trying to back me into a Bible corner to be like, what category can I put you in? Like, are you, do you believe in I the Bible or not? You yep. know? And I thought it was interesting because finally I was like, honestly, like some of these questions don't even have answers. Like, I think they're, they're conversations to be had that just may not land anywhere. And so I think people like that, that are like, they're looking for like, okay, I have this checklist. I want to figure this out. Like, I want to know what, what, what's your view of the Bible? What's this person's view of the Bible? Like, what do I now believe? And I was like, at the end of the day, I don't even know if I know, but I'd love to continue having conversations about it and just kind of wander and see what happens and see where we go. And that's kind of what I'm doing with Josh Scott on Wednesday mornings when we're having these like theology discussions, but it's like, this is what some people believe. And 
let's just wander, you know? And so I think it, that's, that's again, back to the desire for certainty and that, like you said, absolute truth of like, okay, well, what do you do with this then? It's like, maybe we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and just that, just because something cannot provide a completely, um, finite answer to something doesn't mean it's not a value, right? Like there's value. I, as an atheist, feel there's value in the Bible. There's a ton that we can learn from the Bible. There's a ton of history. There's a ton we can learn about humanity. There's a ton we can learn about uh, uh, culture and spirituality. There's a ton we can learn about ourselves and how we see ourselves in the stories. Like, but, but just because it is not all-encompassing, no, and no Christian, no Christians, I feel like truly believe, like, what does the Bible say about electric vehicles, right? Like, what does the Bible say about like voting rights? Um, what does the Bible say about, you know, uh, uh, we've even talked about before abortion, right? Mm -hmm. Or marriage or any of these ideas that exist in our culture and society that did not exist in the time period of the Bible, right? Yeah. And so, like, there's always extrapolation. There's always, like, okay, what do we, how do we take these stories in conjunction with our experience, other stories, inspiration, conversations that we're having with other people? Like, it's not like the Bible is good for everything or the Bible is good for nothing. That's right. stupid. Like, we wouldn't, like, that's like saying, like, you know, uh, is your year one med school textbook, like, able to to uh, uh, be a complete guide to brain surgery. Maybe not, <laughs> you know, but also it might be necessary in the process to get to being a brain surgeon, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, just because I can't read this book and become a brain surgeon, it's useless. Maybe that's a helpful step. Maybe that book is good to read. It's getting us somewhere to another place. This Bible has to be all or nothing thing is a false I mean, it's a false narrative. And I reading that thread, I was just like screaming and like slapping myself because it was like, I did feel like they were trying to push you into like, well, is it, you know, is the Bible good for anything or not? And it's like, well, telling you whether you should or shouldn't masturbate, no, probably not. <laughs> it's, you know, it may have something to say to that conversation, but it's not going to be comprehensive. Well, and I do think sometimes when people are trying to have force those discussions, they want to know how to categorize me and they want to say, um, hey, like, is she, quote unquote, Christian, like really a true Christian? Like, can I actually like or, or can, should I throw throw out what she has to say when it comes to Christianity? So I don't know. I, the other thing that I was going to ask you about is um, did you see the Carl Lentz return to Instagram? I, I did see that as well. Yep. Um, if, if you're not familiar with Carl Lentz, he used to be the pastor at Hillsong, New York, um, has not been since, uh, was it since before the Hillsong documentary came out? Um, it was before then. Yeah. It was like November of 2020, I believe was when his scandal came to light. Yeah. He was having an affair. Um, and so it was interesting. It's just interesting to me that people just go silent and then just kind of appear and it's like, I'm back. And, and I'm, I guess I wonder sometimes, and I'm not saying that like human, oh, the guy definitely has like a book deal. Or yeah. Something. Like I, I saw Janice Legata took a poll. Like let's, <laughs> let's question the reasons that Carl Lentz might be returning to Instagram. Um, 
And I guess my question is, I'm not saying like humans shouldn't ever have like a place in the world, but I just think that like trying to just kind of go quiet for a little bit and then come back and do the same problematic things that you were doing. And, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just a scandal, but it was the, it was the preaching and it was the toxicity of Hillsong and all of those things. And so I just, I don't know. I wanted to hear your, your opinion of seeing him kind of just appear out of nowhere. First of all, I'll say my probably not popular opinion. Um, I don't know, but Carl Lentz is still hot. <laughs> He has longer hair now. He is still a snack, dude. I was like, I don't like you, but I'm still kind of turned on. Um, That being said. uh, Can I? Oh, I I don't even want to say who I have that thought about. But um, it might. You know, there are people here like, I don't like you, but I'm kind of into you. <laughs> that video of Ali Beth Stucky uh, complaining about the new polar bear lesbian polar bear couple in Peppa Pig. I kind of do have that. It. Like, she's really cute. She's so fucking problematic, but she's adorable. <laughs> but she's so awful. Like, and I, you know, but yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I it makes me want to do a thread. I think Joe Lumen did like a like who are you attracted to that you wish you weren't or something thread uh not too long ago that was super funny to me i think my answer was men um (laughs) (laughs) uh tongue-in-cheek like all of them but uh yeah so i i don't know exactly you know if if you ask me like what do i what would i want from carl lentz or what would i want from somebody like this i don't know that i'd have a good answer to be honest um but I think what I would want would be some type of acknowledgement mm. of the harm caused that was not just uh, the kind of like standard Christianese, like I had a moral failure. Yeah. Because I think that that is like the rug by which like so many people throughout pastoral ministry have swept under abuse and you know sexual assault and you know uh manipulation and various other different things i mean if he if he could acknowledge some of the things in real language outside of like i just like had a moral failure i i feel like that would be a a good step you know um and also not hiding behind the fact that like I'm just trying to protect my family. Yeah. Because, like, at the end of the day, like, I get that. I'm not trying to, like, I'm sure it's rough for his wife. I'm sure it's rough for his kids. Like, like, definitely. Um, I'm friends with the kids of my abuser. (laughs) And it was helpful for them to be able to acknowledge what happened in their life and the abuse that went on. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying that's not really, really hard, but you don't get to just go like, well, I have kids. So like, I can't get real about the fact that I was abusive. Like, yes, you can. Like you, you were, you, you allowed your kids to be in the spotlight when you were, you know, a big deal and hang out with Justin Bieber. You don't get to use your kids now as an excuse to stay off the radar when people are trying to figure out you know, how to actually hold you accountable or, you know, how, how you should actually be handled, um,
based on the behavior that's come to light, right? And so I do feel like I don't, I don't like that it's usually like there was a moral failure. I need to protect my family and my kids. And then there's kind of just this like sweeping under the rug any real conversation about the fact that uh, it was more than just this like moral slip up, right? Yeah. There was something deeper going on that caused these things that have caused Hillsong to be so damaging. Uh, and so I think the reason that a person like Carl doesn't do that is because if he can come back and heal his marriage and whatever, he'll have a book deal. He'll have a, a base of people who go look at this redemption story. He was a bad guy who ended up figuring out and, and fixing things. And now he's, you know, um, has this redemption story. But it's not real. It's not honest, in my opinion. Yeah, it, remi- it kind of reminds me. I don't think we talked about this. Is the tweet that Brian Houston put out, who who was the head of Hillsong globally, um, where he said something like, "People are trying to push the narrative that Brian and Bobby Houston are toxic, and that's just a false narrative, and they're just leading you astray," kind of thing. And he turned the comments off for the tweet, and and um, I, I think Janice. Legata shared it and she was like, this is what Brian says in his prayers every night and asks Santa Claus for every Christmas. Um, but it like, it just, it's like, I mean, I think that's the, that's the crux of it. Like turn the comments off. Like, and I, and Carl had the comments turned off for his post too. And so it's like, yep. let's just, you know, we're going to put ourselves out there. We're going to listen to the people that support us and applaud us. And we're just going to quietly shoo away the critics. Yeah. Yeah, and it's on a public forum. Like, that's the thing is, is you know, as long as he's dealing with things in his personal life, I'm not showing up at Carl's house and, like, trying to call him out. But the moment that he's putting stuff out in a public forum, have some public accountability, have some public, like, responsibility, and also, like, just, like, like just be honest. Like, I, I just would like... I feel like there are examples of people who have been honest and it's like the internet's not an easy place. Like it's going to be vicious. Like there's going to be those things, but like, man, you, again, you could take it when you were in the limelight. Like that's not easy either. It's not easy being a celebrity. Right. And like, but why do, why, why do you put up with the being in the public forum? Because of the perks, right? Because you're making money, you're on TV, you're hanging out with celebrities, whatever it is. And then the minute that there's not those perks, it's like, oh, it's not worth it to me to like actually be in the public forum anymore until I can get my image like reshaped into a thing where the majority of public uh, sentiment is positive again. It just feels like a way to avoid, you know, actually dealing with your shit. Well, and I think you nailed it right there because I think people like Carl Lentz and people in evangelicalism are unwilling to go the distance that they need to go to admit the cracks in the system because of the amount of sacrifice it would take to, and because of what, what in their eyes, they would lose that. They would lose that publicity. They would lose their, you know, uh, certain, you know, perks that they have, like you said. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we should get into the interview though because we have a really amazing guest to share with you today and i'm so excited Yay. about ashley thomas we, i am as well so ashley i had just like found out about ashley 
through Dr. Tina when we were planning the, uh, you know, the Portland meetup. And then I began following on Instagram and then we got to hang out in Portland when we did the meetup. And ever since then, Ashley has been somebody who I'm just like very grateful for having in my feed and somebody who I'm grateful to call friend and somebody who I really enjoy supporting her work. So, uh, I want to continue to, uh, promote the things that she's doing. I feel like her voice is really important in this conversation and she's just cool as shit. So she has so much to say. Yep. So many good things to say about intersectionality, about all the things. And I just can't wait for our listeners to hear her. Yeah. So let's get right into it. And uh, yeah, Ashley Thomas, here we go. All right. We are so excited um, to have Ashley here. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hello. (laughs) Megan's here too. Hi, Megan. Hey. So uh, yeah, we're, we're stoked to be back here for season three. And Megan and I connected with Ashley previous to our Portland meetup, but then Portland was where I like fell in love with Ashley Thomas. I was like, hell yeah, I am a fan. And so I'm so excited for you to be here and talk about all kinds of shit. So let's get into it. Uh, Yeah. Megan, you want to kick us off with a question? Yeah. Well, usually like, we always want our guests to kind of give a little bit of context of like how like how did you grow up and what was kind of your interaction with faith and then you know like did you go like are you know go through a big shift and was that kind of over time or all at once and just kind of what's your story with with evolving faith and and all of that um and then as you tell your story we always kind of have lead with curiosity and just um kind of take it from there so we'd love to just kind of hear, hear a little bit about your, your background and your growing up. What brand of Jesus did you grow up with? So I'm interesting that I didn't actually grow up in a home where there was faith. Um, we went to church with like neighbors so my mom could get a break, which is like, I'm glad my mom got a break and it feels a little icky now. Uh, it feels mm-hmm. a little like, you know, we were being evangelized to, but didn't know it. Um, so my mom is like not religious, never was religious, will never be religious. Um, I assume that maybe she grew up going to church as a kid. Um, but like she, like my like teens and, uh, twenties, my mom was like pretty anti-religion, uh, and like really thought I was going to a cult, she was right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I like went to church with like neighbors and then, um, you know, young life the, where I grew oh. up, young life was huge. Like at the time it was like the most funded young life in, uh, this side of the country. Um, and so, uh, all my teachers were young life leaders. Like it was pretty insidious in my, um, and where I grew up. And so um, I did Young Life. And then I did this crazy ass internship when I turned 18. Okay. All right. So so for you, like culture, like around you in school and everything was like Christian, like the predominant amount of like kids that you went to school with or hung out with were Christian kids. And so like being Christian was kind of like 
the the in thing or the more common thing? Oh yeah, I told this story that like I was either going to be Mormon or I was going to be Christian because of where I grew up. Like everyone was either Mormon. We had like a Mormon class that kids went to in the middle of the day for our school or everyone was Christian. And it was like kind of cool to be religious, which is like a weird thing to say, but that's like, like whether it was like cultural Christian or like actual Christian, those are the kids that I went to high school um, with and probably middle school, but I wasn't like very conscious of it until high school. So I guess my question would be like, what was like, what's the, what was the appeal? So was it like belonging and it was kind of, everybody was doing it and, and that kind of thing, or was there something about Jesus or the story? Like, what was it that kind of pulled you in to say like, yeah, I, I, I do want to kind of be about this and not just casually, or maybe it was casually for you. I don't know. I think it was probably a cross between, I had like some pretty dope leaders who like, I would say while they wouldn't call it deconstructed have deconstructed in their later life. But like I had some leaders who like really loved me um, and like love me till this day. Like I don't, that part for me, like whether it was like the, like every kid is loved that young life like does or whatever. But like, I actually am like friends with these humans who like still love me are invested in my life. Like, so their genuine love for me. Um, and I think part of it is like, and I couldn't have named this then, but like, I'm a Pisces. So I like think that I always like was going to be some type of spiritual, whether it was Christian or like uh, something else. Like I just am very drawn to like spirituality and like what that does for a person. Um, and so I think that I like, loved the spiritual practice of being a Christian, even though I would say like, I didn't in my, in my teens and, and early twenties, I didn't even really know what that meant. Um, but I was like drawn to the spirituality of it all. Okay. And so if I'm skipping over something, feel free to like jump back. But like, if we could skip forward to you're on this kind of like track that I'm guessing like was kind of like, told to you like this is you know you're in young life you're on fire for god you're going into an internship you said uh after high school yeah and and where was the point where for you then you began to go like i don't know about all this or there was something wrong or something up or something I mean, not feel right i think something I'm super grateful for is I, I just have always kind of thought things are bullshit. And I also like, I'm the most intense reader of people ever. Like if someone is giving off like wild or weird vibes, I, I, I feel it immediately. And so I think that I always questioned, like I grew up with two gay uncles and that like, wasn't a weird thing in my family. So when my church was like, being gay is a sin and you go to hell, I was like, Whoa, my family and how that seems weird. So like, I think that I, always question and that's like the thing that always got me in trouble um and so I think like I think an interesting thing for me I grew up I grew up in the land of Mars Hill and so I have a lot of mm. like white boyfriends uh who went to Mars Hill bought into it and then were like traumatized by like their deconstruction was like traumatizing 
I think because I didn't grow up in the church and I wasn't fed it from my family, for me, I was always actively deconstructing my faith even before I had language for what that meant. Like anytime anyone told me something that like didn't sit right, I may have done it. Like I may have like believed it to a degree, but I like, it always like was unsettling to me. Like something, there was always like an unsettling kind of vibration happening with me in like your, in your typical Christian church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then did there come a point where you were like, I just can't do this anymore. Like I'm just done. Or I mean, like how did that, how did that kind of go down? I mean, I think it happened in different spaces. Right. The church I started going to was like pretty uh, prosperity gospel. Um, And like nobody was allowed to drink. And, and then I went to a church in Arizona where like, but like women could be leadership sort of at that church, sort of. But then I went to a church in Arizona where, like, women weren't allowed to be uh, in leadership at all, but everyone drank. And so I was like, this is, like, an injured, like, at this church you could do this, at this church you could do this, like, this like, this is seen really sinful, this is not seen really sinful. And so I think I'm like, I was like, ah. so I'm like, done with that kind of church. And then I'd be like, well, I'm done with that kind of church. And so for me, I think it was, like, going to these different faith communities and, like, being like, oh, this, like, this thing that you're doing also is bullshit. And so I think for me, like the last church that I considered my church, um, I think I just realized that like all of these faith places are about control, controlling people. And they would say that they're not, but the reality is, is it's like they were, they're all about controlling. They're all about breaking boundaries Um, they're all about having you be what they want you to be for the space that you're in. Um, and so my last church, which like in the scheme of all my churches, not the worst, I was just kind of like, this is not something that I'm actually interested in being a part of. What was it for you that was like a passion or something that like drove you that, you feel like may have been like a part of like you, the way you expressed faith. Cause I feel like you're a passionate person. Like you bring like your, uh, like you're here to say something. Anytime I'm in the room with you, like you've got something to say in a good way. Uh, and, and I feel like if I would have known you back in your church days, it was the same way. And I also kind of feel like I understand how like churches would have been like, not cool with that, <laughs> or you would have gotten pushback because of the way in which churches that I grew up in were structured. That was like people with something to say are oftentimes like really like kind of like silenced or like, I don't know, pushed, pushed aside. Uh, and so like for you, what are the things that you took out of that that you're like, yeah, these are the things that I'm about and church doesn't feel like it's about that. Um, and so I'm going to continue to kind of like pursue this or promote this or, or discover this, uh, that may have come out of young, younger Ashley. I mean, I think that I really love people, um, which is like, you know, I think everyone would say that they love people, but I just have like a deep, like I, anything you could think of that is like, could cause someone to hate someone. So like, whether it's, for, for me, those things that I don't understand, that I, you know, I don't understand and didn't understand and had to do a lot of learning around was like 
trans people or like polyamory. Those, those are things that I have no concept of. Um, and for me, when I don't know something about someone, but that's who they say are saying, that's who they say they are. I'm like, let me follow this person on Instagram and I'm going to be hella uncomfortable, but I'm going to just keep doing it until I'm like, I get it. Or I just have like a deep compassion for them in their lives. And so I think for me, like being in the church, what I felt it was supposed to be about was like deeply loving people. And I think that that's the thing that like drew me in. But I think I realized that like the church cares about people deeply when they fit into the boxes the church says that they need to fit into. Um, And I think that I have always been towing the line of being more progressive when it comes to loving people deeply. And for me, I'm kind of like a anything goes unless you're like actively causing harm to people, Um, which is interesting because I feel like the church is, they actively hurt the people that I think we should be loving. And so um, I think that that is like what drew me in and then what actually drew me away. Yeah, I would love to kind of unpack more of that because one thing that I we saw you talk about at the meetup was, I mean, y- you have a very clear way of just kind of unpacking what not not even in the church either, like in in even in deconstruction communities. Um, and I kind of when I say that I put it in quotes because it's like there isn't really a community, but like everybody's just <laughs> kind of like thrown together, right? But like there's always like you have a way of speaking to how to see, really, truly see and include people that aren't otherwise seen and included. And so it sounds like, you know, it didn't take you very long to kind of see in evangelicalism or like, okay, this is not (laughs) the way that we should be doing things. But also you see that in, in multiple facets and in multiple sides, like, okay, these are ways that, that people in general, whether they're faith or post-faith, like whatever it is, like need to be loving people more. And I just, you know, you talked about following Instagram accounts too, but like they're like, what are some things that as your journey has unfolded that has helped guide that part of you? That's like, okay, how can I love people more? And just kind of like, as you've walked that, what are some things that you've, um, I don't know that you've, that you've learned, that you've just like started to really um, press into, I guess? I think the things that I probably press in the most to are it's okay to not know and it's okay to be uncomfortable. And I think as a Black person, I'm uncomfortable a lot just as my like, the level that I'm going into, the world in which we live, I'm uncomfortable Um, And so I think it's easy for me to be like, well, I'm uncomfortable all the other times. And I think this is something that a lot of Black people do, which I have compassion for. It's exhausting being Black in this country and feeling uncomfortable in most of the spaces that you're in. Um, But for me, I just make a decision that there are going to be things that make me uncomfortable because I don't understand them. I don't, I don't have, I'm, I, I wouldn't say confused, but like, I think that that, like I'm, there are things that I've been confused about or like, why would someone operate this way? Um, and I think when we are uncomfortable, we don't know, we feel confused. You take two paths and those paths are like, you become hateful 
and you're like, this is not normal. I don't like this. And you like insulate yourself or you like get curious and you like put yourself in spaces where you're uncomfortable, um, uncomfortable not knowing what the correct answer is. Um, And I think I've just like worked really hard and I don't always get it right, but I work really hard at being uncomfortable and I don't understand or I don't know why someone is the way that they are or why they're choosing to press into life the way that they are. Mm, Yeah. I want to, I want to really dig in and like talk about, because like for me, that's one of the things that sitting with you and like talking with you, like I learn a ton and have learned a ton is this posture, like two things that I feel like I was told as I don't know, a, a, a man of the church or a man growing up in church raised as a man of God or whatever, like this kind of like thing that was put on me that was like, you have to know and you have to like be ready to like defend yourself all the time and like have this posture of like, like correct belief and all that sort of stuff. And I feel like somehow like you just like naturally don't come from that position. Like, like even when I heard you and I would love for you to talk a little bit about your experience of like coming out and discovering your queerness, because when I literally had to play it for Crystal, my wife, when you were on Janice's podcast, I was like, you got to listen to this section. Cause you were like, one day I was just like, girls, I'm going to turn on the girls setting on Tinder or whatever <laughs> it was on um, Bumble. And Janice was like, just one day you just decided and you're like, yeah, I just think let's, let's swipe on some girls for a minute. And I was like, that felt like, man, it was so terrifying to me to like come to terms with my bisexuality. And you were just like, yeah, one day I was like, man, maybe, maybe girls. And I was like, what a, I don't know. It was like just a posture that I'm like, I want to have that about things. And, and so I want you to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I think one for me, uh, I identify as being black first. So I'm just like black in America and that's like the space that I have to live in. And so to me, unless you see me with my fiance, you don't necessarily know that I'm gay. And so I feel actually more uh, connected and like a lot of my like how I live life and interact and like I'm like outward facing is black. And so I think for me, that's one of the reasons why it was really easy to just come out and, and, you know, be myself. But also I think that I, because I'm just always uncomfortable, it, say that I like hate watch people but there are people that like I'll like honestly when I first learned about uh polyamory I was like this shit is nonsense like there's no fucking way y'all are unhealthy and I came across this person um this black femme who was like very polyamorous in Portland I followed them um and I am like this is Like, I'm like, I don't understand this. I'm so uncomfortable. Like, this feels like cheating. And I just kept watching. Um, And I feel like through that, I'm like, oh, you actually have, like, a really dope support system when things are hard or when people get sick or when I'm like, okay. And then I, like, really love my friends. Like, my friends are family to me. And I'm like, oh, this is just, like, an expression of that. And, like, I just feel like for me, the same thing, like the same kind of like, um, when I came out, there was like this cute girl at the farmer's market that I interacted with. And I was like, 
man, I find her really attractive. And I just was like, huh, I must, I must like girls. I guess I'll change my hinge profile. And so I did. And I did. And I was like, let me just try this. I think that that's like, I think so many people and, and for good reason, but I feel like so many people are just afraid to try. And so I'm like, I could try this and completely flop. And like, and I didn't, right? Like, obviously, like, I'm going to marry a girl. And so it like wasn't a flop. And so I think I'm just really comfortable being uncomfortable and like, not being afraid to like, try things. Um, I also think that I um, have a lot of baggage because I'm black in this country. And so it doesn't, the rest doesn't feel like baggage I can't carry. It just feels like a weird extension. Um, And so I think that's like a part of it. And also I think, um, I think online spaces are so important. We learn a lot. We like get to be friends. Like I, I obviously like, I have real life friends from the online space that I like meet up in Portland with. Right. But like, I also think that there's something to having real life friends where you live. And I know that that gets more complicated the further South you go, the Midwest, I know it's complicated, but I just like, I'm so surrounded by people who love me and chosen family who like, let me be whoever I want to be. Um, that I knew they were going to love me. And so it made it really easy to be like, well, these people are going to love me. And so it's not as hard. And I also built that chosen family in my 20s. So it's not like I'm just deconstructing in my 30s and I don't have people, but because I have like this community of people who are like, show up and be whoever you are. It, it was like less scary. Mm. And my favorite thing about my group of friends is the day that I came out, it was Easter because my friends and I do things on Easter. We like do a lunch and I'm like, Hey, so I got to tell you guys something like I'm dating girls. Like, ugh. um, and I had friends who were like, Oh God, thank you. I'm trans. And, like, I didn't know how to tell all of you, but... And so, like, multiple people came out in this, like, hangout that we had. And it was, like... I was, like, oh, like, I inadvertently found all of my people who we all were just queer the whole time. And this is great. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I want to talk... I, I want to talk a little bit about decolonization. Um, it's something that I feel like... People, I, I mean, I think everybody kind of gets into deconstruction in different ways, right? And um, there's like always like there's always like what was the first thread, you know? And so I guess my my first question is, how much was your experience being black in America and being black going to church part of your deconstruction? Um, and when you kind of looked at those spaces, how much was it like, okay, hold on, there's something really that is missing the mark as far as how churches deal with racism and how churches, you know, are, are racist and are complicit in, in the history of racism in this country. And, and so I'm just curious, like when that was, when, as you started and you said, you've kind of been deconstructing this whole time, how much of it was, that was kind of a huge part of it, or that was a piece of it. 
So I think in those moments, in the time that I was in those spaces, I could have never named that racism was at play ever. I, I didn't have language for it. I grew up in a town that was all white. I grew up with a mom who was mixed race, but is, uh, she's like phonetically, she's white. Um, and, um, and so like when your mom's phenotype is white and, but like, there are a lot of ways in which I'm, I was raised both white and black. That's really complicated. And you grew up in white spaces. My school district was really white. And so when I was like in church, I could have never named, oh, this thing was happening. But now that I, so like when I was 25, I like shaved my head, sort of, almost all the way off, but not quite. Um, and having curly hair, like, a, like gave me this awakening to racism in the world. I was like, oh, this is a thing. And I started learning it. And now when I look back, I'm like, oh, I literally was uncomfortable in those spaces all the time. Like people commented on like my fat body. People comment, like I was like, we in the internship that I did, we literally had to not only do the Daniel Foss, but we had to like log what we ate and we had to work out a certain amount of times a a week. And so like, I feel like I was always trying to like not be in the body that I'm in and weight loss is fine. Um, but I get to choose if I want to lose weight. I get to choose if I want to maintain weight. Like I get to choose for my body what I want to do. And that like wasn't the space that I was in. Um, and like, I, like, I also think I wasn't affected by coming out the same way that uh, white people that I know, because I think when I was learning purity culture things, I was not seen as desirable. So why would I even need to learn about purity culture? Because no one is even going to try to have sex with me, right? And so I think I also um, can look back on those things and be like, oh, I felt shitty all the time. I felt out of place. I felt like I didn't belong, but I didn't have a language for that. Um, that's not something that was like acceptable from where I came from. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like your experience in different spaces navigating, I guess your experience as well as like your observance of other people's experience around intersectionality? Cause you talked about body and, and just like being in your body in the world. You talked about being black in the world you talk about being a woman being a queer person like all of these different things are identities that put you kind of at risk and to some extent like people use those things as a uh i don't know a blood a bludgeoning tool i don't i don't know what the right word is but people like use those things to come after people. And what I've experienced, at least, or what I've seen, is oftentimes people are, like, trading one, support of one identity at the cost of another. Like, someone's trying to aggressively go after someone who's a fundamentalist Christian, and then they'll be fatphobic. Or someone's going after somebody who is a conservative, and they'll be racist. Or vice versa, or someone will be being, you know, uh, trying to defend, uh, someone against transphobia. And they will be, we even had this conversation about this, this person, you told me a story of like, 
people were like trying to defend a trans person and then the person they were defending against was Jewish. And all of a sudden we were being very anti-Semitic. So there's like all of these intersectionalities. How, how have you experienced those intersectionalities in terms of people like feeling like they're on the right side, but still being on the wrong side in two or three areas of your life? Listen, I don't like to call people garbage, but if you, if you're defending people, especially as a white person defending almost always queerness, right? That's like a big thing. You're garbage if you're using someone else's identity to like shit on them. Like I, like here's the thing. I know that people of color and black people oftentimes struggle with queerness. I get it. It's a thing that exists. I have a lot of grace and space for black people in the same way I have a lot of grace and space for white people who can't get it together with race. Um, and I think like the, the, the compassion stops when it's outside of people's identity. And so for me, I'm like, if someone is being transphobic and they're Jewish, I'm not that identity. So I'm going to use that. They're Jewish. And my, and my response is to become anti-Semitic. I actually haven't learned anything from deconstructing. I've learned nothing from leaving the church. And so I actually think it takes a lot of inner work to um, think about other people's identities and not try to marginalize them as they marginalize someone else. I also think that it gives people fuel. Like if I'm, if I was like a conservative pundit and I was like talking nonsense about identities like if I was like mad homophobic and people were like yeah but she is a fat black bitch is that gonna make me be is that gonna change my heart to people no it's going to make me feel like people who are um on the other side are dehumanizing me and I'm not going to be able to see that what they're upset about is me also being someone who dehumanizes and so I try really hard and I'm not always good at this because listen, if you're ugly and you're dehumanizing people, I'm going to say you're ugly. That's just, that's just who I am. (laughs) I I just, and it's, and if you think you're pretty and you're ugly, I'm probably going to say something, but like, I'm not trying to choose. I'm not, I'm not going to be fat. I'm not going to be fat phobic to someone fatter than me because they're being transphobic. I'm going to like, call out the behavior that they're doing, but I'm not going to then be like fat phobic. How does that help anyone in this scenario? Um, And, and I also think that it like, it gets weird victimy. I don't know if you saw, um, I'm going to say her name wrong because multiple people say it differently, but um, Amandala, Amandala, however she says it. Uh, She's a black queer actress, like a C actress. She was in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. She was Rue and Hunger Games. And um, in Bodies, 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 she uh, is wearing an outfit where she has cleavage. She is not like scantily dressed. She just has boobs. And this white um, uh, critic basically says like, it's just a cleavage fest for 90 minutes. Amanda Love responded and was like, uh, to a private message responded and was like, um, maybe she didn't look at my boobs the whole time. This wouldn't be a thing. This critic then, who is also queer, like, was like saying how homophobic Amanda is. 
but she's like, she's, she likes girls. She dates girls. And so I think we just like, we, we just work really hard when someone is being dehumanized or we feel dehumanized to then our responses to like be the victim while we dehumanize others. And I just think it's weird. I think it's a weird social media thing. I don't understand it. Yeah. How, how, how do we, how do we hold that tension? Like what is, have you seen people like from your experience, like acknowledge, like, like recognize it and go, Oh shit. Like this is what's going on. And if so, like how, because, because I also feel like it's a major let that issue of being geared towards outrage and divisiveness and not towards like understanding and learning is a major problem, but it also gets weaponized as a way to be complacent or to not acknowledge something because, you know, people I've heard white liberals, especially like when they're called out for being racist or when they're called out for doing something that is problematic, they're like, well, I'm on your side and you're taking me down. Did you and see it's like, BLM in my profile? Is that in my bio? Yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't yeah, you see I, I had a black square on I'm, Instagram, I'm, didn't <laughs> so so that type of rhetoric gets weaponized by people who don't who just don't want to listen or learn. They're like, don't attack me. So how do you distinguish those two things? I mean, I think it's like what is being said. So like if let's say you're being racist towards me and I'm like, bro, you're mad anti-black you like are still being wild and then like something blows up on twitter because that's where things blow up right it's like are people saying like no like you don't actually get to talk to black femmes that way right or are people talking about your identities so then it becomes like you're a feminine man you're bisexual right does it like like what are we morphing into and so i think that the best um I follow this trans man online. I've talked about him before, but his name um, is Skyler and his um, at is like Pink Manaway. Pink Manta Ray. Um, and, oh, I love him. Oh, I love him. Well, the, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, you see the swimmer? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. He's fantastic. I love so, his like, stuff. So, like, obsessed with him. But, like, uh, probably last November, December, he, like, posted about Lil Nas X because Lil Nas X posted the, like, pregnancy of his album stuff. And so he wrote this post about Lil Nas X, and it was a little anti-Black. Like, it was a little anti-Black. Um, and the Black trans men were like, no, no, like, there have been cis white men who have done this. No one has ever said anything. Why is it all of a sudden a problem when it's a um, a Black man? And, like, we're Black trans men. We don't like it either, but there is a better way of doing this. And I feel like Skylar's response was, like, you right. You right. So he just, like, did a follow-up where he talked about, like, why it was anti-Black and, like, what he's learned and, like, how he wants to platform Black trans men more. And so I think that it's, like, like, I think those Black trans men did not dehumanize him. They were just, like, hey, like, harsh, but, like, hey, this ain't it. No thank you. And Skylar's response was like, oh, you're right. And so I think it, I mean, I think it's difficult because you need the posture of both people, right? Um, and so if this Jewish girl never changes her mind about um, including trans women and that trans women are trans women, like there's nothing that I can do about that except for say why I will include trans women. And I think sometimes people are like, 
you deserve to die then when it's like, no, I don't agree with you. We can't be friends. This is why I believe what I believe. And like, we can actually, we can, we need to separate from this. Right. Um, like I can't, I can like, this person is my friend, but like, that's like the posture. Like, I'm not going to follow you. I'm like, like being, being, uh, harmful to people should have consequences but i just don't think that those consequences need to be oppression well and i think that part of this a piece of this conversation has to be like because Cortland and i've talked about this on the podcast before like what is it that prevents people from saying you're right i fucked up and i'll do better and i'm learning and i think that a, a huge piece of it is that people aren't willing to let go of the power and privilege that they might be clinging to in that moment where they're, they don't want to risk any of that. And I think that the more power and privilege somebody holds, the less willing people are to, to have that moment of reckoning where it's like, Oh, I'm willing to be held accountable. And I'm willing to say, you're right. I fucked up. And I, I don't know, like, I feel like it's something that you've spoken about before, but I'm curious your thoughts about that. I mean, I think it's also terrifying to say you were wrong because our country is and world is really punitive. So like when someone has messed up, the response is not, we're in community, we're in this together, I'm I, like, we're still going to love each other. It's, I'm unfollowing you, I'm going to make you lose your job, I'm going to, and I, I'm guilty of this, right? Like I have done shitty things to people Um Granted, I would say that they were not sorry, but, uh, like I've done shitty things to people and, and, um, instead of like lovingly calling them in or, or having their community come alongside them, I think we're really quick to cancel each other. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't think there should be consequences because when you are someone who causes harm with a big profile, you should lose, uh, followers. You should lose brand deals. Um, but it doesn't mean you should lose community. And I think our country, because of our jail system, I think it all is rooted back to slavery. Like we want people to be dehumanized. And so everything is punitive. Everything is like, if you hurt, you're going to get hurt. And so I think it's like one aspect is people not wanting to give up their power and privilege. And I think another aspect is it's terrifying to admit you're wrong. It's terrifying to be like, I fucked up and I want to do better. Um, because oftentimes when people say that they lose community on the flip side, what we have, we have done this weird thing where when someone doubles down on their hate, they actually gain community. Mm. They like gain the thing they were afraid of losing. And well, and I'm curious too. I, I kind of want you to unpack that too, but I, I also, yeah, and that's a, that's terrifying because yeah. I definitely think that that's true. That like the incel who is, you know, feels, you know, isolated is like, Oh, I can go on 4chan and I have people rooting for me to rape girls, you know? And it's like, Oh, I, I all of a sudden have this like support system around. They may not even believe that ideology, but, but they somebody have people who hasn't. Who, yep had support now has support in something in that, that permanence, that idea in their, in their mind. And I don't know how to fucking fix that because it's a big, like how do Liz lives of TikTok have like 1.2 million followers? Like how are there that many shitty people in the world? Yeah. Like it's in, incredible to me. 
Yeah. Well, and I think on the flip side too, like you talk about the risk of people saying that I fucked up, but I think it's a huge fucking risk sometimes for, for someone to call in and someone to say the thing and someone, and I, and I wonder because you're somebody that says the thing. And so are there times where you see, come across something that's problematic and you have to calculate that risk? Like, okay, um, I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to say, Hey, this is super anti-black or whatever it is. Like this, this is ableist. This is fat phobic. Like what, what is it that goes through your brain when you're trying to calculate, okay, but I'm putting myself at risk to see how they react and if they're going to react with vitriol, you know? Oh yeah. I totally calculate that. I mean, I did like a funny Instagram about student loans and someone was like, white people were slaves too. The Irish experienced slavery. And so like people always want to say something when black people say something. I've seen a lot of white people talk about student loans. People do not come for them the same way that black people who like speak out against wrongs or like people assume I don't have a job or like I don't pay taxes. Right. And so I think I am like, there are things that I see that I'm like, I'm not, nope. Like, and I think for me, I have a, I have really good social media boundaries. And so like, I, this is not my job. I have a job. So like, if someone says something, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to delete your comment. I don't actually need the engagement. Um, and I know that some people do. And and I'm not I'm not faulting people for that. I'm not like um, people are going to choose to do in their like online space, their home, what they want. For me, like for my own peace of mind, like I'm just not going to spend hours arguing with someone who like is committed to misunderstanding what I'm saying. Um, and so sometimes I'm like, this thing sucks. I, I, I can't, I can't actually like the, the January 6th, I barely talked about January 6th because it is exhausting. I was very unsurprised. Um, and the hate that comes from that is too much for me. And so, yeah, I, all the time I'm like, okay, if I say this, what are, I was was just talking to my therapist about this. I do this in real life. If there's like a scenario that could be tricky, I think through all the scenarios that could exist for this tricky situation to protect myself. I do the same thing when there's something online that I could say something about. Um, and sometimes the risk is too high. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think it, 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 as I'm hearing you talk about it, as I'm hearing Meg talk about it, like the intersectionality again becomes a point of like, you know, I was I was I was getting attacked on Twitter recently because I made fun of Olive Garden and people like are passionate about the Olive Garden. Um, Wait, that was about Olive Garden? It was well, it was about Olive Garden. And then it like it doubled down because I then made an apology about the tweet being classist and it and it, and it had some classist vibes to it. But in my ap- apology, I made kind of a broad statement about learning about my biases around race and ableism and classism and people were like thought I was pandering people thought I had no backbone mm-hmm. I was a you know beta sub cuck whatever like and that's when it really blew up into it so it started with Olive Garden and, it blew up. and I was sitting sitting there complaining to Crystal about like that and she was like yeah but you can like go for a run tonight and like not be worried about your safety She's like, like this, this, I get that this feels like you feel threatened by the internet right now, but like, I feel threatened if I go outside right now 
and that was like for me i was like fuck like like yes like that's i i'm so wrapped up in where i feel marginalized for this one moment that i forget that i have all of these other areas of privilege throughout my life and and i think that that becomes something that gets in the way of people being challenged and for you when you say like i was always dealing with being black and white spaces and so being queer in straight spaces or being progressive in you know conservative spaces or whatever it is like like it was like secondary and and sometimes those of us who we've never experienced this like all of a sudden we experience it and then we want everyone to come and pat us on the back and be like oh yeah poor you i think that that we have to like unpack that and people like me have to i think do more work in calling specifically white men out for being like come on dude <laughs> like, in the in the port, uh, port in portland uh, portland when we were in portland uh and we were talking about purity culture and i said that like purity culture like exists because of slavery and white women were seen as this like pure thing and if a, a, a someone who was enslaved and they were black was with a white woman they would be killed like but like enslaved women had babies all the time uh from people who had ownership over them right and so i think it's like also this interesting thing listen you're not gonna like this but it just is what it is i think sometimes white people who deconstruct is very like insular it's like all of the bad things that they experience and don't get me wrong i said this in portland I'm not negating the bad things that have happened to you because of the religious spaces that you were in. Those are valid. Those are real. But people with marginalized identities also just experience the world in a particular way. And so I think for me, it's a lot easier for me to get over the terrible things that happened to me in the church because terrible things happened to me uh, because I also have to operate in the world the way that I do. And I think I think it's really, I was, just, I was just talking to friends about this, that like, um, you'll never hear me like play oppression Olympics. Like I will oftentimes, if you ask me uh, about me, I will often give the privileges that I have first. So I will say I have a master's degree. I um, have a full-time job. Like I will share the things that I, like I am mixed race. I am not a dark-skinned Black woman. Like, I will share, like, the privileges that exist instead of focusing on the marginalizations, which are real. They impact me. Um, but I never want to be so caught up in those that I'm not thinking about people who experience this world and even harsher than I do. Um, and I think being in deconstruction spaces, it's really clear to me that people get so focused on, like, what they've experienced and the gamut of how they've experienced like the church and some people I'm like, it's, it's weird. It's taking this long for you to like get through this. Like, I don't like, I don't understand why this having to read Joshua Harris, we're going to go to the basic having to read Joshua Harris has like nothing else. Right. Like has impacted you to the space that like, you can't see racism because like you're so impacted by this book that you had to read. Um, and obviously that's like a very like low stakes version, but I just think it's like when you don't experience oppression, when something, anything bad happens to you, 
it's the worst thing that could happen to anyone. And that's just not true. Um, and so I think it's really important, um, which I think is also why I can meet people with compassion that I don't understand. It's really important that we're not just focusing on the bad shit that we have experienced. Go to therapy, get help, find people who love you, who can talk to, but also recognize that, that the world does not revolve around you and hurt doesn't stop there. Mm. Boom. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> uh, all the things. Yeah. I mean, I, that's like, that's exactly it. And I think, I, I think that that's, that kind of message is like why we wanted to pull you on the podcast. Cause we loved hearing you talk about that in Portland. And, and I also think that like, there's something about that where, again, you're not afraid to say the thing, but just the wisdom that you bring from your lived experience and from the things that you've, that you've gone through, but also in engaging with the world, because you, you have a, a way where you're, you know, you have room for compassion, but like, you're not like, Hey, just go out and, and be racist and do, you know, problematic things. It's like, you're going to call people in and you're going to say like, no, this is not, this is not the way that, um, this should be. And I don't know. I just, I, I really appreciate that about you. Yeah. Can you, can you, can you talk a little bit? Cause one of the things that was really impactful to me was seeing you and Joe, sitting up at the panel that you guys did together and talking about the fact that you guys met kind of in conflict, right? Like, didn't you like, like have like some conflict or something? Maybe I shouldn't be talking about this on the podcast. I don't know. Like, no, it's fine. Uh, I think <laughs> okay. Joe and I have been okay. really honest about this. Uh, yeah. Joe is cool. also a really great example of someone who, um, did a shitty thing. Black women called her in and she like did the right thing. Um, so like the whole Joshua tree debacle, um, which riles me up until this day. Um, yeah. And we've had like three episodes on it. So like, like riles bring me it on. Up. Um, <laughs> Joe like participated in not even the initial Joshua tree, but participated in conversations that like we're anti-black. We're like anti, anti, uh, we're like fat phobic. Like, I just feel like the way that these women came out afterwards and just doubled down on uh, we're prettier than you, which is like coded language. Uh, you know, like uh, Joe participated in that and she like defended. And obviously we uh, know how absolutely terrible and difficult that situation was for Joe. And Joe apologized for things she didn't need to apologize to. Uh, or apologize for in order to like have compassion for people who experience marginalization more than she does. And so I hated the live that she did. So I just messaged her and we're like, that live was not it. Um, and we went in a little bit and we just kind of started talking about um, what her motivations were. Like um, we talked a lot about like the hate she then was experiencing because of this, even though like, all of the responsibility fell on Joe as the only, like, or the most, the most visible person of color. Because uh, I do think there was one person there that might have been also what I would say the person of color. If you're white passing, I apologize, but you're white. Uh, but not really, sorry. Um, and so Joe was like, the only one of color, the only one speaking up. And a lot of hate was like directed at her. 
um, instead of being directed at the women it should have been directed at. Um, and Joe like really took that in stride. And so we just like talked a lot about that, but my first message was rough. Um, and Joe was like, it was great. I love that you did it, but it was, I was rude. Um, and it like just opened this conversation for an I and Joe to like meet each other where we were at. And really, I think, uh, for Joe and I, like I have, we like recognize the ways in which we both experience the world and how our different areas of oppression and privilege interact with each other. And so, you know, in Portland, we were talking about how I, um, I'm obviously an American citizen. I have a passport, but I didn't have a passport until I was an adult. I had no concept of how to get a passport. And Joe, while she was, um, she grew up in a different country, she did have a passport. Um, and so the moment I got a blue passport, I held all of these privileges that I didn't know that I had, but I never traveled before I became an adult. And so like, how do we like sit with each other in our differences, in our different areas of oppression? And like, how do I recognize the ways that Joe experiences life? Like Joe's first language is not English and people drag her for the way that she talks or writes things. And that will never happen to me because I, English is my first language. And so like, it, it's been like this beautiful, like, how do we meet each other um, and how we experience the world? Um, and it really was birthed out of trash. I'm glad Joshua Tree happened because some of my favorite friends mm. exist in my life because of that. Mm. Um, but it really was like, how, how do we deal with conflict with each other? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's like these conflicts that that birth relationship actually birth like really beautiful yeah. things when they're relational and and I see people engaging in these conversations and I feel like it flies right in the face of the people who try to kind of just sit on the sidelines and then use that as this justification to be like, oh, well, like, I just didn't get involved in the mix. And like, you know, so like somehow that that's like, you know, a better situation when, yeah, sure. Conflict can sometimes result in the loss of relationship, but oftentimes like if both parties are committed to engaging in the conversation, there can be like, it can be relational and like there's relationship com that comes out of it. I'm also like, if we're accountable to each other, cause I know like there's like the movement of like, I'm only accountable to the people that I have opened myself to be accountable to, which you sound like Mark Driscoll, first of all, like you just got your little, <laughs> your little board you created, but like my I'm, board like, of overseers, yeah, Ashley, like, okay. Like, you're gonna have to talk to the white men I put in charge of, of tell me what's right. <laughs> trash and you do trash things your friends are trash and they do trash things like there's just no way of getting around that like if you're someone who causes harm your deepest friendship like i don't know anyone who has a friend who is just like out here causing harm and you're like yeah i'm i'm still friends with them because like gotta hold them accountable like what um and so like no when we're accountable to each other and i think when you open yourself up to the online space. And I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm actually like very critical of like holding people accountable for things that happened 20 years ago or two years ago. Like unless you committed heinous crimes that like um, you didn't reckon for, I'm very weirded out by like 
you said the N-word on your Twitter when you were 11 and were like telling you you need to be held accountable for that. No, you were a little kid and you like you like you that thing could have been the thing that caused you to have growth and we just didn't see it. Um, but if you're doing something in the moment, so Joshua Tree happened today, but in November. Um, yeah. I'm like, if you open yourself to the online space, you are accountable to the people in the same way you think we these pastors should be accountable to everyone, even though it's outside of their congregation. Like, what happens if we actually say, like, oh, I hurt this person on the internet. How can I hold account for that? And it doesn't mean you need to respond to every single person, but it does mean if you're seeing common threads of how you people are experiencing you, it seems weird to me that you wouldn't be willing to address that or try to change or realize the, the spaces that you've created are not for everyone. Um, so yeah, I don't really, it, it's a, I've seen people do that really beautiful. Uh, Skylar, Joe, where they like are being held to account by people in the internet space. And they're like, Oh, I do want this to be a loving space and I missed the mark. And how do I fix this? And I think so many people in the deconstruction space, it's not, we have like two ways people operate. They either are like, I'm accountable to my friends that also did this shitty thing. So <laughs> we get a nod. So we, <laughs> we like, okay. Um, we get people in the deconstruction space who are like, I am not going to say anything. I want nothing to do with this. Um, that person's my friend. And, and that also is like tricky. So I don't really want to like speak to it. Um, whereas I don't think everything needs to be said publicly, but I do think that there is something to say of like, Hey, I've heard all of these concerns. This person's my friend. Um, and I'm going to, uh, offline have a conversation with them. But I think to just act like these things don't exist or be afraid that you're somehow going to be held accountable for something. I just think it gets like, you're hurting the most marginalized always. That's just like, it's always, you're like, upholding the patriarchy you're upholding like you're upholding all the things we learned in the church to be quiet to keep power in place and i like i don't i just don't have time for it well and i think it speaks to like how can we have authentic community if there are certain things that we have to not say because it could potentially be hurtful to the person doing the problematic thing right so exactly Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's how you see this beautiful friendship with you and Joe, because it's like, you both have an understanding that like, you'll both show up, even if there's a thing that you need to say, you'll both show up for that thing, even, and and you're able to say something with the risk that that could be hurtful, but like, you know, that they want to hear it because if they're doing something problematic, you know, that they want to hear it. So I think that that's exactly, yeah. And that's community, right? Like that's like authentic, actual community, which is like what we're trying to do here, you know? So I think we're getting to like the top of the hour, which is kind of when we want you to like, (laughs) this is the time that we want you to plug your stuff and and where people can find you because we know that they're going to, they've fallen in love with you as they've heard you talk and give this interview. So where can they find you and tell us a little bit about what you're doing on social media and other places? Um, You can find me on instagram that's like my only social media um twitter stresses me out so um i'm on instagram and i feel like you can find me talking about race 
deconstruction. I think that I tend to um, talk about racism in the church a little bit more than I talk about church controversies. Um, And also, I just, I also really believe in like queer black joy. And so you're also just going to see snippets of my life, my relationship, my wedding. Um, And I don't know my name on Instagram because I'm terrible at social media. So put that somewhere. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. Yep. It's unashamedly Ashley. <laughs> oh, thank but it's you. it's I got it. I got you. But uh I'm like I'm I'm like halfway like self-appointed like Ashley's like hype woman. So like I'm gonna like be here like I'll put her Venmo in the show notes and her <laughs> Instagram and she needs wedding gifts. And if you're a stranger and you just wanna like like I don't know. I feel like a preacher for a second because I'm like, just bless her life. We're gonna take up a love offering for Ashley at the end of this episode. I'm just kidding. Put but a link for to real. the we'll put it all registry. In the show <laughs> yeah, yeah. Buy her and her fiance cool shit. They are such cool people, and yeah, I love you. Thank you for being on the podcast and for talking with us. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right, that's another episode of the Thereafter podcast. Another cr- incredible interview. We have some amazing interviews coming up the rest of the season. Uh, we are going to try to keep it pretty short here at the very tail end and just uh, uh, give a few quick reminders. Megan, you can tell people where they can find us. Yeah, you can find us, us on Instagram, Thereafter Podcast, and on Twitter at Thereafter Pod. And you can find me at The Pursuing Life on all the places and Cortland at Cortland Coffee. Yeah, I'm Cortland Coffee all over the internet. And we also now have the Patreon. So if you're looking to support what we're doing uh, on the pod and want to join the Patreon community, uh, you can click on the link in any of our bios uh, across social and join that or go to patreon.com slash thereafterpod. Um, and there's three uh, levels to be able to join at. And uh, yeah, we really enjoy um, that there's some people over there hanging out with us on Patreon. And we're going to be doing, you know, over the next few months as we get into this season, doing some fun stuff with the patrons. So it's a great way to be able to support what we're doing. If you do not have the finances to be able to join the Patreon at this point and still want to support what we're doing, one of the best ways to do that is leaving us a review. We say all the time, uh, Apple Podcast has a place to leave a review, and that's a really helpful way to just support what we're doing and get the word out about the podcast to more people. Yeah, I think that'll do it. All right, until next week, we'll see you all next Tuesday here at Thereafter. After.